so it, what we've been doing is kind of walking through the Old Testament. And we've been using the Storybook Bible. And I know you guys liking it. You like reading it to your kids. It's pretty awesome. As an adult, I think it's real awesome, which is why I'm going to read part of it to you later. Um, the idea was that we would walk through a survey of the Old Testament proving who Jesus was. That the whole Old Testament is the promise of God. He's going to send the Messiah a rescue plan. And those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we've walked through lots of the Old Testament. Well, today we get to land in some familiar territory, but I want to drive home grace. Too often people think that the Old Testament is full of venom and meanness, and Jesus comes along and he brings grace. It's false. Grace is throughout the Old Testament. Infinitely, God shows grace upon rebellious people over and over and over again. And so we start first with a man who is hard to understand and hard to even like sometimes. Now we left two weeks ago that he had just slain Goliath. He wiped him out. Um, the storybook Bible doesn't show it. We were reading it to the kids this last week. And like he killed him with a rock. He's like, well, not really. He knocked him down and then he cut his head off. And Eli was like, he chopped his head off? That's awesome. Yeah, I, I guess it is, but it's kind of morbid too, son. But yeah, we, just, we try to tell him what really happens. And so you have King David. So he's become king. And for his whole life as king, he defends the kingdom. People continually war against them. They come against them. There's all these tribes around. They want the land of Israel. They want the lushness that exists around it. They just keep coming after. And he defends, and he defends, and he defends. Read the stories of King David and his, his mighty men, his 300 mighty men, and these really were warriors. They were men's men. Like, you read the stories about how, I forget the guy's name, but he, his hand was frozen to his sword because he had cut down so many men. Like he had a cramp where he couldn't let go of the sword because he was fighting for so long and for so many. And just these amazing stories of, of defending the land. So he was great at that. But he was awful at defeating his own sin. David is a man. Um, Amber led uh, Beth Moore Bible study going through David back in West Virginia. And we would have these constant conversations of, this guy? This guy's the man after God's own heart? How could this guy be the one? He's a wreck. Consistently disobedient, consistently outside the will of God, consistently sinning, and he's always asking for forgiveness. And he's like, well, how many times can God forgive? How many times? Well, that's what we see in the picture of who David is. That he was a train wreck of a man, but he consistently knew that he had re- he'd rebelled and sinned against God, and he asked for repentance. We see it in the story of his children, where he has Solomon and Absalom. So he has Solomon who becomes king, and he has, Sol- he, you know, he has this affair. He takes another woman, and he has children, and there's a curse against them. And then he has these two sons. And Solomon goes to become king, and Absalom, because David is a horrible parent, he doesn't stand up for his daughter who has been violated. And so Absalom says, I'm taking him out. He doesn't even defend the children. He doesn't even bring justice. He doesn't do anything right. And so he wars against him. David hears that his son is dead and he weeps. So this man is a, he's just a constant swirling mess of turmoil and greatness and despair. When he gets called out by Nathan in his sin. So he's, he's, he's king. He's hanging out on top of the roof. He sees a woman who's bathing on the roof. I don't know if that's wise, ladies. Just, I wouldn't do that. But he's, he sees this woman and he's like, I want her. 
So he takes her. He takes Bathsheba. And to cover up his sin, he wants her husband dead. So he orchestrates all this stuff. His plan doesn't work. And he has her husband killed. So he commits adultery, probably rape, takes this woman, and then he has the husband killed, and God's supposed to just pass over that? So Nathan calls him out in his sin. What's David do? He t- there's a whole parable. Nathan lays it out. He goes, it's you. And David cringes. He realizes the depths of what he's done. And he writes Psalm 51, that he sinned against God and God alone. So we see this consistent pattern in David where when he is filled up with his own righteousness, he screws everything up. But when he follows God, he follows God's word, he follows God's lead, great things come from this king. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, there's a story about the Ark of the Covenant. And if you want to know what an ark looks like, you can go into our prayer chapel and see one that Ben made. It's kind of cool. And so you have this story. What happens is... um, David defeats, there's all, this, there's all these wars that are happening. And the Ark of the Covenant, which is the box, if you guys have watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, like that. Okay, so you have the Ark of the Covenant, which the holiness of God, the Ten Commandments are inside the box, inside the Ark. They would carry that into battle. And sometimes they would open the lid and the enemies would flee or they'd be slain. So you'd have the Ark of the Covenant who always went into battle first, saying God is with us. We're taking God to the battle. Well, they get defeated. The Israeli, or the Jews, the, um, the Hebrews, they violate God. They refuse to do what he says, and so they lose the ark. The Philistines get it. So for years, the Philistines take it. They stick it in their temple next to the false god Baal, and like the statue's falling apart, and things are crumbling, and like, I don't know, let's get rid of this. So they get rid of the ark. They like leave it places. And consistently, people take the ark, they stick it in their basement, they stick it in the house, they stick it in the barn, and their lands flourish. Everything ha- great things happen. And so they decide, we're going to get this back. David decides, we're going, to, we're going to defeat the Philistines. We're getting the ark. Let's go. So he does that. They get it. And if you go into First Samuel or 2 Samuel 6, he defeats them. Uh, it goes to the houses. They're going to these places. They stick it on a cart. People are walking. Ahio went to the ark. He went before. It almost falls off. The ox stumbled. Verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzziah, and God struck him down there because of his heir, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David's angry at God. Like they stick it on a cart. It starts to fall, and he goes to catch it. He falls down dead. David gets mad. What is going on? I go, just stick it over there. I don't want it anywhere near the temple. I don't want it anywhere near the place of God. Then he hears. Gosh, it's... The guy's house, you stuck it in, you're hiding it there. His, he's got making all this, he's just flourishing. His land's growing. Things are great in his house. Well, gosh, maybe we should go try to get it again. Bad things happen again. Finally, in 2 Samuel 6, about verse 13. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Ob- Obadiah to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox, and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now, when, when you hear the, how the ark is supposed to be created in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, like there's, you kind of see it happening, how the ark is supposed to be created. It's made a certain way, it's done a certain way, and you carry it on poles of acacia wood. It's meant to be carried by men, bore on shoulders, you carry it. 
You don't stick it on a wagon. You don't stick it on a cart. You're going to carry the Ark of the Covenant. God said very clearly how this was to happen. You carry the Ark. So every time they stuck it on a wagon, every time they stuck it on a cart, every time they stuck it in somebody's house, they did certain things, bad things happened because they weren't listening to God. So David has a revelation. Maybe I should do what God says. Seems like a novel idea. Let's do that. So they go to the house. They stick in the poles of acacia wood, and they carry the ark out. They carry the ark out. And so six steps. They make it six steps. No one dies. They set the ark down. They kill some animals. They have a party. They have a worship service right there. Now, this is where the title for the, the Passion Albums, Louis Giglio's record label, Chris Tomlin, David Crowder, all those guys, the name of the record label was Six Steps Records. That we're going to follow God in what we do, and so we're going to make worship songs, and we're going to sing things because we're going to follow the Word of God. We're not going to do it on our own. We're not going to try to make fame. We're going to be a reminder that we follow God. So he starts to dance in a linen ephod. So what he did, a linen ephod is kind of like, it's not underwear. Like, that's not... But it's, it's the garment of a priest. It's an undergarment of a priest. So David casts off his kingly robes and he dances before God like a priest, saying, I'm king, but it's more important to follow God. That's this man who we're talking about. That happened before he cheats on his wife. Like, he's the king. He's doing all these great things. He's experiencing God. He was right next to him with the ark and he gets it. This man gets it. And yet he still falls. And yet he still falls. So what we kind of get out of this is that repentance was the pattern of his life. When he would mess up, someone would call him on it, someone hold him accountable, he repented. He went before God and said, I've sinned against you and you alone. I've sinned against you. I'm sorry, God. That's why we see that throughout the New Testament. The testimony of faith is that God gives you the faith to believe. All you bring to the table is your sin. You lay your sin at the foot of the cross and you repent. You grieve God. I'm sorry, Lord. I need your help. I can't do this on my own. I can't figure this out. I need you. I need you. So we see in the life of David... That forgiveness is for everyone, but you can't escape the consequences. There's grace and mercy for everyone, but there are consequences for your actions. There are consequences. Every time that Jack Harvey goes to the prison and he um, goes and serves and he shares the gospel and he works with the people in the jail, he always comes back with a prayer request with a long list of names that the elders, when we get together for um, our time of prayer every week, we have this long list of people and there's not been a time in the elders that anyone has said, how dare those criminals ask for prayer? They're wicked and they're evil and they don't deserve grace or mercy. There's also never been a time where any of the elders have said, well, we should just pray for them to be just released and all the charges dropped because we want grace and mercy for everyone and there's no consequences for our actions. We pray for their lives to be changed. We pray for grace and mercy to be known to them. We pray for them to have cling to God through the consequences of their actions. You parents, I mean, I've just got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. You know what this is like. 
how difficult it is to parent your child, to have grace and mercy for the child that you love, but also there must be consequences for actions because you don't want to raise a generation of brats, of self-entitled people who think they deserve everything that's before them and they want to get away, they want to get away with everything and have zero consequences for anything, right? An article in the New York Times this last week said that the criminal mind, the mentality of the criminal mind is exactly like that of a two-year-old in the terrible twos. It's a psychologist doing a study of criminals saying that the exact same behavior, the I want, I can, I want to do it, it's how I want it, I don't want to listen to you, that the exact same mentality that we see in criminals is the exact same mentality we see in a two-year-old. And so he lays out in his argument that it's not that criminals are made, we're all criminals, we all have wickedness, but usually our parents help us get through it during the terrible twos because they had consequences to our actions. And it's a whole thing about parenting, this whole long article. You know it. You can tell the kids whose parents give them zero consequences. Didn't you just see it in the court case a couple weeks ago? Affluenza. There was a real legal argument that this kid is so rich, he doesn't know what consequences are. So, right? Like, that's the mentality, is that just whatever. Well, David shows us, God shows us through him, that everyone deserves forgiveness. There is nothing you have done that keeps you so far from God that he can't forgive you. There is nothing that you have done. David's an adulterer and a murderer and a rapist. And he was given forgiveness by God because he repented of his sins, not because he was entitled to it. Without repentance, how could you ever know who God really is? It's not good enough just to say, I'm sorry. It's repentance. That only goes so far in my marriage. I keep doing the same thing over and over again and going, sorry, sorry, sorry. How quickly does the sorry become shallow and worthless? Right? It's when you repent and you work hard and you struggle and you say, I can't do this alone. So in David, we see that forgiveness is for all. In the storybook Bible, sure enough, when David grew up, that's just what he became. And David was a great king. He had a heart like God's heart, full of love. Now, that didn't mean he was perfect, because he did some terrible things. He even murdered a man. No, David made a big mess of his life. But God can take even the biggest mess and make it work in his plan. You're not too far gone. You're not too big of a mess to be used by God, to be showered with his grace and mercy, and to be brought into a loving relationship with him. There is no one who's too far gone. No one. We keep going. God's grace through the prophets. So God pro- he, he promises not to destroy the earth again. When he comes back again, that's when it's over. Until then, he's not going to do those things anymore. But he sends messengers. He sends these messengers to the rebels of God. He sends a series of men to show up and say, What are you doing? Don't you remember what God said? What are you doing? I mean, that's, I'm no prophet. Don't hear me say that. But that's, that's pretty much all I do. I get up every week. I open up God's word and I tell you what it says. And I look at you all and go, what are you doing? Jesus is better than what you're doing. Jesus is better than what you're struggling. Jesus is better. And then I'm preaching it to myself. And my wickedness through the week, like, what am I doing? How am I parenting? How am I being a, what am I doing? I need to follow what God says. So the prophets show up. And they keep sending messages, messages from God consistently. 
They're just mouthpieces. How dare you? What are you doing? Come back to God consistently over and over again. Over a hundred years and an exile later, hundreds of years, and in exile we have all these prophets. We have all these prophets that are constantly proclaiming that God is real. God is real. He's here. Repent. Turn to him. Get rid of the false gods over and over and over again. And God promises to rescue them. Um, One of the most misquoted pieces of scripture that makes it on coffee cups and makes it on keychains and makes it on walls is Jeremiah 29 11. Now it's a great piece of scripture. I'm not saying it's a bad piece of scripture. People treat it wrong though. So let's look at 10 to 12. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I'll fulfill you to my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Now, people will take 29.11 and say, well, that's why I'm going to be prosperous, and he has a plan for me, and to profit you. So like the prosperity gospel people love to quote this passage. God wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to be rich. See, Jeremiah 29.11. Well, that'd be great if it was actually biblical, but it's not true. You have to remember, Jeremiah prophesied to a group of people that refused to listen to him. They refused. The people of God wanted kings. Well, every other cool village has a king. We want a king. And God had said, do not make kings. You will listen to me. You will listen to the prophets and the priests. You don't need kings. But we want kings. All right, have your kings. And everything was disastrous from that point forward. Read First and Second Kings, this long list of awful So Jeremiah shows up as a prophet and says, turn from your ways. If you repent, God will save you. If you repent, this will be better. If you repent and turn away, things will be right again. And they refuse. So Jeremiah tells them, you're going to be exiled for 70 years in Babylon. But, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's for the whole people of God. So where do we see else throughout the whole storybook Bible And in the scriptures, when God promises a hope and a future, who's he promising? It's church. The answer is always Jesus. Jesus. He's promising Jesus. So when you quote that, that's great if you're talking about the gospel, that the promise is Jesus. If you put that quote places and you think it means you get money, you're twisting scripture. And I would politely tell you to your face, you're a fool. The promise is Jesus. After 70 years of pain and torment and exile, the promise is, I will save you through Jesus. So the prophet Jeremiah just lays it out. And he tells them, I'm going to save you, but it's going to be Jesus. Then we get Isaiah. Who has most of the promises of the Messiah and the descriptions of Jesus we have in the Old Testament. And so I thought I'd read it to you out of the storybook Bible. Dear little flock... You are wandering away from me like sheep in an open field. You've always been running away from me, and now you're lost. You can't find your way back, but I can't stop loving you. I will come to find you, so I'm sending you a shepherd to look after you and love you, to carry you home to me. You've been stumbling around like people in a dark room, but into the darkness a bright light will shine. It will chase away all the shadows like sunshine. A little baby will be born, a royal son. His mommy will be a young girl who doesn't have a husband. His name will be Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us. 
He is one of King David's children's children's children. The Prince of Peace. Yes, someone is coming, going to come and rescue you, but he won't be who anyone expects. He will be a king. But he won't live in a palace, and he won't have lots of money. He will be poor. And he will be a servant, but this king will heal the whole world. He will be a hero. He will fight for his people and rescue them from their enemies. But he won't have big armies, and he won't fight with swords. He will make the blind see. He will make the lame deer leap. He will make everything the way it was always meant to be. But people will hate him, and they won't listen to him. He will be like a lamb. He will suffer and die. It's the secret rescue plan we made from the beginning of the world. It's the only way to get you back, but he won't stay dead. I will make him alive again. And one day when he comes back to rule forever, the mountains and trees will dance and sing for joy. The earth will shout out loud. His fame will fill the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. Everything sad will come untrue and even death is going to die. And he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Yes, the rescuer will come. Look for him. Watch for him. Wait for him. He will come. I promise. Love God. That he consistently promises himself over and over and over again. He promises to rescue us. And the prophets proclaim it. Some listen, but many don't. At the end of the storybook Bible, uh, this part of this section, we picture it, we pick up another story of a prophet. The one named Jonah. Now I know. Everybody likes to talk about, was it a fish? Was it a whale? How is that possible? Don't, don't miss the point of the story. Don't miss it. Don't turn this into a biology class and try to pick it all apart. And is that possible? If the creator of the universe can speak things into existence, he can make a fish big enough for a guy to hang out in for three days. Okay? I don't know. We, the point is, who is Jonah? What was God doing? We see this prophet who doesn't want to go to this Assyrian city. The city of Nineveh was a city of wickedness. A city of wickedness. The Assyrians were a warrior group that they would take the victims they killed in battle and they would skin them and they would hang their skins on the walls to prove their victories. They would wipe out multitudes of people. They were consistently warring against everyone around. This little city of Nineveh on the base of the Tigris River, would, they would go out and attack all kinds of people. And so Jonah, very likely, had had encounters with the Assyrians. We see these hints of his anger and his hatred towards the Assyrians. And God tells him, hey, uh, go to Nineveh. Jonah knew exactly what was going to happen. If God sends a prophet to a heathen group of people who are wicked, why is God sending a prophet to speak the word of God? And Jonah said, no, I will not go because I know that you're faithful. I know you're full of mercy. I will not go to these people because I hate them. So what happens to Jonah? He gets thrown off a boat, gets swallowed up by an aquatic animal. He gets spit on the beach, which is nowhere near Nineveh. And he marches to Nineveh. If God's going to rescue him, he cannot fight this. He cannot fight where God's taking him. He shows up and he begins to preach these people with no conscience. The scriptures say they don't know the right hand from the left. They don't know right from wrong. They were a culture that said, whatever we want to do, we can do. They were a culture that said, there are no rules for us. We're going to do whatever we want because we know what's right. We know what's wrong. There are no consequences to our actions. 
they did whatever they wanted. When I was teaching history, I used to have students read. When I was trying to teach world religion and philosophy, we had a section on philosophy. I had them read out of a book called The Tao of Pooh, which Taoism in an Eastern Asian philosophy is a very naturalistic, you are an animal, you kind of do whatever feels right and feels good, and you don't, you don't really live these rules. It's whatever, it's a, it's a, it's a faith, not really a faith, it's an ideal based on instinct. So we'd use Winnie the Pooh as the example because he was the perfect Taoist. When he had a rumble in his tummy, he ate. When he was tired, he took a nap. He had no idea of responsibility or consequences. He just did. Oh, that's your pot of honey? I don't care. I'm hungry. I'm eating it. So, I mean, and when you think about it, that's not a very good example for our children, is it? But whatever. It's Winnie the Pooh. The same thing was here with the Ninevites, these Assyrians. They did whatever felt good. They did whatever they thought was right. Zero consequences. So when Jonah shows up, he starts preaching to them and telling them there are consequences. He calls them out in their sin. The king of the Assyrians here in Nineveh, the Ninevites, he hears it. He repents and he calls the whole city to fast and pray. The whole city fasts and prays because Jonah says God is going to destroy you. As an example that there is a right and there is a wrong and you're wrong. So the city repents. And he saves them. And he saves them. People look at the Bible and they go, well, gosh, you know, grace and mercy was just for the Jews. It's just for the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. And then we forget the story of Jonah, where you have an Old Testament prophet going to Gentiles, showing them grace and mercy, proving that God was for everyone. He's for everyone. Not just the ones that grow up in church. Not just the ones that grow up in the right country. He is for everyone. But poor Jonah, he still was very angry about all of this. He refuses because of his hatred, and yet God hears their repentance. God hears them anyway. If you read in Jonah, we see that his hatred had no bounds. In chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. This is after the town's been saved. And he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Why did he say that? He did not want the grace and mercy of God to fall on the people he hated. If we're honest, we have that in our souls. Because we want revenge, and we want justice, and we want it on our terms. Don't we? We've talked about this, like the, the cultural connections that we have to television, where almost every night there's some show where it's law and order, or some about somebody's good wife, or some show over here, or even, even funny shows like Psych, which is a terrific television show to watch. They're all about the bad guy being caught and justice being served, Right? It's deep inside us, and it's deep inside Jonah. But God has a different plan. He has grace, and he has mercy, and he has forgiveness. And if we're honest, there's deep parts of us that don't want to forgive people. People that have wronged you, husbands and wives that have left you, children that have rejected you, we don't want to show them any kind of forgiveness. Because we like to live on that. It burns deep in our hearts, and it gives us fuel. Our hatred gives us fuel to carry on the next day. 
But God's proven that some of the most wicked people that ever existed on this planet deserve grace and mercy. And I know as we walk into this season of Christmas and New Year's and the parties and the cookies and the food, that many of us will sit at tables with people that we really can't stand. We will sit at tables with family members that we have tension with. And I'm in the most gentle way trying to tell you that that's not of God. He wants you to seek forgiveness and the well-being of these people and show them grace and mercy. If he can show it to these crazy Assyrians, he can show it to someone in your life. I'm not saying you become best friends. I'm not saying. I would never take a victim right to the person who victimized them and said, here, just get along. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you leave the consequences up to God and you show forgiveness and you show grace. And even if you never encounter them, if someone's victimized you, someone, a parent that was brutal to you, and you don't want anything to do with them, I don't blame you. But in your heart, you have to show them forgiveness or you're seething in anger that's not of God. Forgiveness isn't saying we're all good. Forgiveness is saying I'm giving this to God and I'm going to let him deal with you. That's a lot scarier than the anger you have. I promise. So after Jonah, we see a few minor prophets um, come along and you'll read it through the storybook Bible. I mean, you should kind of be ending there tonight and then you'll start reading about this promise. What we have happen next is 400 years of silence. So the storybook Bible ends it this way. It had taken centuries for God's people to be ready, but now the time had almost come for the best part of God's plan. God himself was going to come, not to punish his people, but to rescue them. God was getting ready to wipe away every tear from every eye, and the true party was just about to begin. We enter into the time, the intertestimony period. I'm going to say it wrong. That's why I get for turning these fancy words. Between the Old and New Testament, we have 400 years of silence. God speaks nothing through no prophets, through no events, through nothing. 400 years of silence. So everyone that had witnessed and heard the prophets speak themselves, they're all gone. They're all dead. And all you have left is the word of God. And so as the people were examining the word of God, this is the 400 years where the the religious leaders add over 300 rules to to the Bible. And so when Jesus comes and he rebels against his religious leaders, he's... He's smacking them in the face for all the rules they added to God's word during this inner testimony time. So you have all of this period, 400 years of silence. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, we have a party. He's here. The promises, thousands of years, over a thousand years of promises, 400 years of silence, and then he comes as a baby boy. So like Christmas Eve should be quite the hoedown. Can you say that? I don't know if anybody really square dances anymore, but it should be quite the party. He's arrived. He's here. He's come. The baby's here. Emmanuel, God with us. The promises have been fulfilled. He's here. Grace has come. Mercy is here. You have to know as you walk through the whole Old Testament that that grace and mercy are for all who repent. There's not a single one of you who is so far from God are so far from touching him or being close to him. There is no one that is so far from God that he can't rescue you. No one. And I pray that's, that's the message that we send. 
That's the message that you share with people as you invite them to come to Christmas Eve, as you break bread with them at your home, as your family and friends come in, as you go out to your family and friends, do you carry the message of grace and mercy? I'm going to close with this quote from Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City. If you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at all I've done, or maybe look at all I've suffered. God, however, wants us to look to him to just wash. You don't earn his love. You don't, you don't pretty yourself up and polish yourself up so then God wouldn't find you acceptable. He finds you acceptable as you are right now. And then he promises his presence to then help you live a life that will begin to honor him. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't, hap- it doesn't happen in our lifetime. He promises to be right with us as we struggle through life to honor him with our lives. And then he'll take us home in our death or he'll come back and he'll end it all and we get to be with him forever. Do not believe this lie that once you become a Christian, once God opens up your heart, that all of a sudden you're perfect. I don't see anybody walking around with halos or the glory of God shining on their faces. You're just people. And we're constantly every day in that struggle. Which drives us to fall at the feet of Jesus. That's what he's saying in this quote. It's a spiritual humility it's hard to muster. Where we can self-examine and say, I need a lot of work. Because that's not what gets you the CEO job, right? You don't walk into the interview and say, well, of course, I've had all these accolades. I'm terrific. Look at my resume. I will fix this place. Because I'm awesome. And then a year or two years later, the board of directors is saying, what's going on? I thought you were perfect. Well, I just say that in the interview. No one's perfect. Well, I, you lied to us. No, the, the board were fools for listening. So instead you have a humility. You have a humility that comes in and says, I desperately need Jesus. I can't do this on my own. And you'd be surprised how hard that first step is for people. To admit that they're wrong. To admit that they can't do it. That they don't have their lives under control. Because here in America we teach consistently. Never let them see you sweat. Real men don't cry. You never act like you have a problem until the very last minute when the whole world's crumbling around you. You never are honest. You're always going to put on a good face. When we walk by you in church or at work, and we say, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Great. And you keep walking. And inside, you're in turmoil. You're, in, you're devastated because we want to just keep it very surface level. That's not what God wants. He wants to tunnel deep into the depths of your heart to fix the parts of your soul that are broken and to show you that he is the only way to live. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Um, thank, you for, thank you for your word. There was a time in my life, Lord, where I, I thought I was pretty smart and that I came to the logical conclusion of the truth of who you were the logical conclusion of the cross being the only way to be connected to the Father after studying every religion in the world. That's where I landed. The logic and reason point me straight to you. 
Because you're the only religion in the world, you're the only figure in the world that came down to creation where everyone else is trying really hard to be perfect. And I knew the depths of my own depravity. But Lord, then you opened me up to your word and you showed me the truth of the scriptures. You showed me the truth of the depths of the gospel and I fell in love. I fell in love like I've never fallen in love before. This, I, you, you, you stepped out of heaven to be with me. You stepped out of heaven to take my sin, to take the sin of everyone who would profess a faith in you. That you came down out of heaven in perfect community with the Trinity, in perfect harmony, and yet you came after us. That the great rescue plan was you coming for us. Lord, that's why we fall at our, our faces in worship, because you loved us first. We don't have the capacity to love you unless you give it to us. We're such rebels. And I pray, Lord, today, um, as we studied through this last part of the Old Testament, as we've seen the vein of your son, Jesus, through the whole Old Testament, that we see that you're gracious and you're merciful and you want your, your children, you want all that you've created to be reclaimed and brought back to your heart. And Lord, if, there, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't, have that relationship with you, I pray that you begin to plant seeds, you begin to open up hearts, you begin to soften, that they would begin to study your word, to read, to ask good questions, to bring all doubt to the table, and have find good, great people around to show them grace and mercy so they would fall in love with you. And Lord, for those of us in the room that have been walking with you for a long time, I pray you'd give us some motivation during Christmas during New Year's, as we're with family, there's all these great opportunities to talk about you. Help us to not be bogged down by media and news and yet proclaim your name, that you're everything. We love you, Jesus.